one. We'll pick up our exposition that we left off just a couple of weeks ago. Um, We began a trek through the book of Philippians verse by verse, and we find ourselves this morning in verse number 27. Um, We're going to read those four verses that remain in chapter number one, but our emphasis this morning will be on verses 27 and 28. So if you're willing and able, um, we'll stand out of reverence for the reading of God's Word. We'll pick up our reading in verse 27, and then we'll go to the Lord in prayer. Philippians 1.27, we read these words. Only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of your affairs, that you stand fast in one spirit, with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel, and not in any way terrified by your adversaries, which is to them a proof of perdition, but to you of salvation, and that from God. For to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ not only to believe in Him, but also to suffer for his sake, having the same conflict which you saw in me and now here is in me. Let's pray. Again, Father, we come to you this morning, I pray, with hearts of faith, seeking and pursuing the creator, king of all the earth this morning, the king of kings and lord of lords, Jesus Christ is his name. Father, we know that the only way that this would have ever been possible is in the reality that your son gave his life on Calvary on our behalf. Father, that his flesh was rent, the veil was torn, that we might enter into the holiest of holies even this morning, that we can come boldly, Father, not with uh, pretension and not presuming upon God, Father, but with joy, willingly pursuing after those things that Jesus Christ and the Spirit of God, the Father, have clearly laid out in His Word, Father. We don't pray for, um, I hope we do not pray, Father, this morning for frivolous things or flippant things, Father, but that You would transform our hearts by the renewing of our minds and that our desires would be Your very desires, Father, that Your will would be accomplished this morning, Father, in our midst. That you would stay our hearts, Father, that you would tenderize our inner men, that we may receive the word of God, give us ears to hear and eyes to see, Father, truths that are eternal, glorious, Father, and, um, ever cha- and, and never changing. Father, we know this morning the frailty of our minds. We know, Father, this morning the fickleness of our hearts. At least I know mine, Father, and I know that I um, often stand with anxiety in my heart, Father, fumbling over my words. I'm trying to catch a thought here and there and convey that, Father, with faithfulness. No doubt the people this morning, Father, too, have a frailty of mind, um, ease of distraction, Father. And we just pray for a few moments that you would just um, give us, Father, a, a vision into glory. Father, that your word and your son would so capture us, Father, I'm like a great landscape. Or a display of the glory of heavens. Father, as it testifies of your character and your nature. In those moments, Father, it seems as if that's all that exists. And we could look at it all day. Father, we pray for the next hour. And in this text, that you would do the same. Father, that you would just capture our attention with the glory of Christ. Father, that you would show us the fickleness of our minds. And our just utter need of you. Father, would you help us to cast ourselves down, 
to deny ourselves, take up our cross and follow Jesus. May we see Him as all glorious and all worth, Father, um, our very attention. May you do the same in the little one's minds, Father. And all of the words and phrases and all the points, Father, uh, may they miss 99% of it, but may that 1% that they catch be Christ and Him alone, Father. And may you use it, um, not only in this life, to make them more like your Son and to bring them to yourself, but that you might use it, that they would lay up treasures in heaven. Father, we pray that if someone here today does not know Christ, that today would be the day of their salvation. They would be a babe born into this family, Father, and you'd help us raise and nurture and the the Lord. And Father, if not, and we're all saints. Father, make us more like your son. Do it now, Father, according to your will as we go to the text. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. Thank you so much for standing. As I mentioned, uh, this morning we return to Philippians chapter number 1 and verse number 27. Um, if you've not been with us, and I know that some of you are visiting, if you've not followed online, um, again, we've taken up the text I mean, Philippians 1.1, 1, 1, and our pursuit is through the end of chapter number 4, to get the fullness of what Paul's desire was for those that are at Philippi. Um, throughout the week, um, I sent out the sermon outline to those who are uh, generally attending the church here, whether members or not. And the outline this morning is, number one, Paul's instruction only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ, verse chapter 127. And number two, the second point, Paul's desire. So Paul's instruction first, and then second, Paul's desire. And Paul's desire is, is that those at Philippi, and us as well, would have fruit that is consistent with a life that is lived in accord with the gospel of Christ. And under that second heading, I noted six characteristics of a life that is worthy of the gospel. I have to go ahead and tell you, though, we're only going to make it to four. Um, and we'll pick up the others next week. In conclusion, with verses 29 and 30. And I tell you that, just so you'll know where we're headed, because there's a lot of times that I totally abandon the outline and go a different way. So I tell you, in some part, so you'll know that I had an outline to begin with. Um, and that maybe you can keep track as, as we go, but I'll try to, to stick to it. But in Philippians chapter 1, verses 27 and 28, we return to what is probably, um, again, this is just my opinion. You can, you can argue with it if you like, but I, I believe it's one of the most beautifully affectionate letters in all of the New Testament. Um, and probably, again, in my estimation, and it's not much on some days, um, but it seems to be the most affectionate letter of the Apostle himself to any of the churches that he writes to. And it could be, in part, that the Apostle Paul is what we might term, even though he doesn't say it here, but, but I think with good reason we could say that Paul was the father, spiritually, of the church here at Philippi. Some time ago we went to Acts chapter 16 um, in preparation for the preaching of this book and this letter to get the context in which the Apostle is writing, some ten years after the birth of this church. But if you'll, uh, you may remember that the Apostle Paul was instrumental um, in planting this church. He was the primary preacher. Um, he and a group of other men um, were led by the sovereign hand of God, even according to, to his own purposes. And in contrast to their own desires, God leads them to Europe and initially to a place called Philippi, a Roman colony, 
um, to preach the gospel. And through that preaching, God effectually works in multiple people, a multitude, a church is planted. It seems that Timothy is left behind to disciple that church. And Paul leaves, but carries an affection in his heart, as we've already seen, for this church. That Paul is not writing um, a theological treatise, that this is a real letter, um, dictated and governed by true circumstances. That the Apostle Paul is now in a Roman prison, attached to a Roman, possibly Praetorian guard, and he is suffering for the preaching of the gospel. The, the church at Philippi sends a man by the name of Epaphroditus some three to four hundred miles to alleviate um, the burden of uh, this man's sufferings. Only the, to find out that when he gets there, Paul has a, writes a letter to send back Epaphroditus back to after Epaphroditus almost dies, um, doing what a true friend and a brother in Christ would do. I'm trying to alleviate their burden. Saying, in some sense, in essence, in the first part of this letter, um, don't worry about me. And in all reality, what has happened to me has happened for the furtherance of the gospel. Um, And God has forged in that relationship just an affection for Philippi that the Apostle Paul desires to alleviate that burden of their worry and concern for him. And that's what he does um, with the first 26 verses or so. Um, In verses 1 to 2, we see a general introduction and greetings just filled with um, theological truths. Um, Verses 3 through 11, we saw the praise and petitions of the apostle on behalf of the Philippians. And in verses 12 through 26, we saw um, in some some condensed form a report of the apostle Paul related to his own circumstances and the effect that those circumstances have had on the furtherance of the gospel. And then he expresses his desire in the last few verses to come to them once again. expresses this tension of going and staying, of dying and living. And he is uh, determined with some level of confidence that he will remain, that God will release him from prison. Why? Because he still has a ministry even to those um, that are at Philippi. And then we pick up in verse number 27, really with the first level of actual instruction. We've learned so much in the first 26 verses by virtue of implication and Paul's love for them, and Paul's example to them. But you'll find here that in verse number 27 is actually the first command, the first instruction that the apostle gives um, to this blessed people. But prior to that, I want to note particularly that throughout the opening verses, the apostle Paul, um, his primary um, desire, his, his love, if you will, you can often tell the love of a man, the purpose of a man, the point a man lives. Um, when he talks, when he writes, when he journals, what he does. And because you'll see this common thread all throughout that life, all throughout that letter, all throughout that speech. And one of the things that you see repetitiously, even through the first 26 verses, is just this repetition for the gospel life. Verse number 5, the Apostle Paul speaks of Philippi's fellowship in the gospel. He thanks God in verse number 7 for their defense and confirmation of the gospel. Their, their, their avid warfare, you might say, for the purity and the proclamation and the pro- propagation of the gospel. In verse number 12, he speaks of the furtherance of the gospel through the preaching of Christ and even his own ministry therein change. You can't contain the gospel, he in some sense argues. 
And then in verse number 27, we'll see another facet of gospel life as the Apostle Paul gives clear instruction to those at Philippi as to their life and relationship to the gospel message and the gospel life. You know, he in some sense praises and thanks God for many facets. But the church at Philippi is just that. They're a church at Philippi. And they're men, they're women, and they're men and women at best. They're not perfect. They excel in some areas, and they seem to um, be weak in other areas. And that's the nature of any true New Testament church. And that's really the nature of any New Testament church member. That we are all growing. And just as a, a, an individual is on a, a track called sanctification, um, a church is as well. You know, we've seen this church grow, not only numerically, but, but, but just spiritually. And in the coming days, we pray that that's more. That we continue to mature and strengthen the areas in which we are weak. Uh, I'm, I'm very, very clear about the faults that I have as a pastor and a preacher. And I see those faults even, uh, not only in my children, but in the church. And thus, as other men come on, we seek to... To, to strengthen those areas of gospel life. Just like any church, like any individual, we're growing in the Lord. And it seems here that the church at Philippi is strong in some areas, yet they are weak in other areas. Paul praises them again because they seem to be an apologetic church, a church that is defending the gospel, and even a church that is somewhat evangelistic. And, and they're coming to Paul's aid when no other church was. They're, they're a loving church. Yet at the same time, they're not a perfect church. Thus, the Apostle Paul comes in in verse number 27 with some seeming instruction. And that instruction is, we might frame it in this way, that not only should you be a gospel church in the sense of furthering the gospel and proclaiming the gospel, evangelizing the gospel, and defending the gospel, but you too must be a church that adorns the gospel. That lives out the gospel. That takes upon the gospel in life and practice. And in life and practice in the practice of the church. And it's going to manifest itself in one of the primary ways, as I mentioned just earlier, in unity within the church. That this is what Jesus Christ died for, He prayed for, and He seeks in a New Testament church. That the gospel must not only be defended and proclaimed and evangelized and propagated, but it too must be lived out in the local assembly as much as in the individual life. And thus the Apostle Paul gives clear, number one, clear instruction. Paul's instruction, verse number 27, only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ. That's the command. What you'll find, I think, is that the rest of the, the, the four verses is, in some sense, a fleshing out of that command. And what, a, what an appropriate command for January the 1st. And what an appropriate command as we think about the last year and examine um, what we did and who we were and how we excelled and where we were weak. And, and, and as we reflect upon that and look to the new year, God gives us these patterns of life. And, and what a better passage and a better verse and a better motto to take into our hearts this year to say with some sense of resolve that this is my command. This is our church's command. This is instruction that we need to heed because it will guide and undergird 
Um, as an umbrella text, every single, um, every single ounce of church, individual, and gospel life that we in, engage in. So let us look first at the, Paul's instruction, Paul's command. He says, only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Verse number 27. Again, he uses, he begins this phrase, this command, this imperative, and this instruction with the word only. I want you to take note of that initially. The word means just that, only. But it may be a more vivid way, you might want to say it as alone, this one thing in some sense. <laughs> which may seem to you like an insignificant word, seem to me like an insignificant word, and that's because sometimes it is. And depending upon context, sometimes Paul will use it as just a transition, um, but, but when you look at the original language here, what you see is that in the original language, oftentimes things would be emphasized by word order. And at the very beginning of this command is this term, only. Um, so commentators, translators, everyone's in agreement that there is an emphasis here on the term only. It becomes emphatic. It could actually be translated in some sense, and it would be a proper interpretation to say, not only only, but above all, or at all cost, as in Galatians 3.2 and other places, remember this. Remember this. It defines limits. Only narrows down the scope of a command by qualifying the instruction that's given. In other words, it's one thing for Paul to say, let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ in coalition with many other commands, as in a grocery list. It's a totally different thing for Paul to say, only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ might be like for the little ones here, boys and girls. When you're going to stay over at grandma's or grandpa's and they give you instructions and they say, wake up at this hour, make your own bed, brush your teeth, eat breakfast, behave well. Um, in that list, it seems as if behave well is one of the many things. But, but your parents may say, as mine did, above all. If you don't remember any of that, <laughs> remember this. You represent this household. Behave well. The way that you carry yourself affects the name. And if you were brought up in a Christian home, they may have said to you, carry yourself well, it reflects upon the Lord. It preaches something about Him. It says something about your God. Because in all reality, that if you remember that one thing, that umbrella command, that foundation which undergirds all other commands, then you will be, if you understand that, then the laundry list really is unnecessary. Because what will happen is, is that you will principally, in the inner man, be governed by that one principle that will inform all the decisions of life. This is so important. You know, it is so important. What we want as immature men is a catalog, or immature women, is just a catalog of the Christian life with black and white commands, do this, don't do that. When this happens in the church, this is how you respond so that we know everything uh, that needs to happen. And I would still, to this day, I would welcome that if God would, in His revelation, put it on the pulpit. But that's not how God works. God works in men, bringing them by the power of the Holy Spirit, governing them by wisdom and principles such as love, joy, peace, that fruit of the Spirit, so that when something arises 
Um, within the Christian life or within life in general, you know how to be led by the Spirit of God and by those principles um, to, to govern yourself in a godly manner in that scenario. That's what you want of your children as well. Right? Um, when we raise our children, we raise them in such a manner that they become in this world as babes. We lord over them for the first several years. Seemingly watching everything that they do, teaching them how to work and to labor and to sit and lording over them in some sense, correcting them as they go and rewarding them when they do well and commending them in their obedience. But at some point, you know, you, you, you learn to let it go. And they need to be able to honor their parents, even apart from them, that, 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 that within they're, they're learning to govern their own souls out of love and obedience for um, their, their parents. And in a similar way, that's exactly what needs to happen within the local assembly, um, within the local church. So he says here only, this principle above all, that I'm going to give further instruction, but if you'll remember this and this alone, and you'll understand this and this alone, then you'll know how to carry yourself um, in the world. Only what? What should we remember? Above all, Paul, what should it be? Number, uh, uh, secondly, as it is worthy, as it is worthy, let your conduct be of the gospel of Christ. Only as it is worthy. Worthy means suitable. It means in a manner worthy of. The phrase as it is worthy comes from a one word that really means to weigh, to have weight. Having the weight of another like a, like a, like a, like a value. Worth is much, congruous, corresponding to a thing. The idea here could be um, illustrated by a business exchange. Let's say you have an ounce of gold. You go in to exchange it for money. What do you want? You want monetary value. That's exactly the same. You go to the car lot. Maybe 21st you know, century, better for us common folk. You go to a car lot. You spend $5,000. What do you want? You want $5,000 worth of car. You know, you want that. You want to go home with that. Your employer pays you for 10 hours a day. You know what they want? They want 10 hours of work. They want an equal exchange. They want, when the, scale, when the, belt, when the scales are balanced, they want what is on the one side, they want it on the other side. They, want, they don't want it to be weighed out. They don't want to pay you for 10 hours a day when they get 2 hours of work. Just like you don't want to spend $5,000 on a car and get 2000 in the metal when you get home. That doesn't operate. That's what Paul is saying. Paul is saying that your conduct, only let your conduct, your behavior, your Christian life, let it be worthy of the gospel of Christ. That the scriptures are clear on this. Jesus Christ died to save a people, his bride. He bought a people with his own blood. He pays a price. 1 Peter 1.18 says, knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by the tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. Peter's clear. Christ bought a people. And if you are a son or a daughter of God, then we can say personally, individually, that Christ died for us. He bought us with His own blood. And His price was a sinless life. The blood of the innocent one, the Lamb of God who was slain before the foundation of the world. And the implications of that are huge. Prior to 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 18 that I just read, um, you read this. Therefore, 
Peter is writing to the saints that are scattered abroad. Therefore, in 1 Peter 1.13, gird up the loins of your mind. Be sober. Rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the former lust as in your ignorance, but as He who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Because it is written, be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on the Father, who without partiality judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay here in fear, knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things, but with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. And the idea is, is that, that, that there is this exchange that is to happen. Paul, as well as Peter, um, takes this reality and puts it on our level and says that, that Jesus Christ bought your life and He bought it not only in the sense of eternal life or this quantitative living forever on into eternity, but qualitatively. That Jesus not only bought a people out of every nation, tribe, and tongue, which cannot be numbered, Revelation says, but Jesus Christ bought with His own precious blood a certain type of people. And that when you realize the transaction that was made and that the righteousness that was accrued to your account, uh, uh, to His account, and it was given to you on His behalf, and our sin was taken upon Him, that it's not only an eternal righteousness, but a practical righteousness that is transmitted to us and that we grow in. And the idea is, is that, that your conduct should be worthy of the gospel of Christ. That, that if the gospel, the gospel means something. The gospel is God. It is the good news of Jesus Christ. That He enters into the world and He dies on behalf of men who are sinners, who are unworthy, and He extends that grace. And that grace should just be wrought in the heart. The love of God shed abroad in the hearts of those who have received Him by faith and repentance in a contrite heart. And the fruit of regeneration just is poured out. And by virtue of that grace, it pushes us towards a certain type of life. That's why we are to be holy. Why? Because He is holy. And as the Spirit takes residence in our lives, it begins to manifest itself in a holy life. And the idea is, is that the conduct worthy of the Gospel of Christ, that there are expectations upon those who adhere to the Gospel of Christ. But the idea is, is that, that, that the Gospel changes. And that God expects, because of the Gospel, a certain type of behavior. And that in the New Covenant, whenever God covenants with you, um, th through the blood of Jesus Christ, the Spirit is given for you to live a certain type of life. And that life is a holy life. And that's why the Apostle Paul, as well as Peter, attaches that great payment of the precious blood of Jesus Christ to the way in which we live and the type of people in which we are. And that conduct is to be in accord with the privileges, the rights, and the responsibilities that God gives us in His Son. Now this word here, let your conduct. Generally, the Apostle Paul, as well as in the book of Philippians, Ephesians, many other places, I mean, he has a word that generally means just the walk of life, you know. As you walk throughout life. It's kind of the idea that he gives, this progressive walk. But here it's a different word. You may even have a translation that says, citizen. 
This is a unique word that is used here by the apostle to express um, a citizenship. Uh, verse, uh, chapter 3 and verse 20, Paul uses that same word in root form and he says this, For our citizenship is in heaven. Our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And the idea here is, is that when Jesus Christ died and you appropriated Him by faith and repentance, you became a citizen of another nation. Now, Philippi would have understood this. Why? Because Philippi is a Roman colony. Removed three to 400 miles from Rome itself, yet it carries with it outside of the native land and the boundaries of Rome, citizenship, rights, privileges, and responsibilities even outside of that native land. That they, would have, they carried it with them. They bragged about it. Even within the Scriptures, it was something that they were known for at Philippi. As well as many other Roman-type colonies. That, that being apart from the land, even 400, 800 miles away, they could invoke Roman privileges. Even though they were not within the boundaries of Rome. Paul is communicating to this people who understood what Roman privilege was and what citizenship meant. And he is, he, is, he is propagating to them and proclaiming to them that you have a citizenship even higher than that. It means something to be a Christian. And with that comes rights and privileges and even responsibilities. And although you're not touching Canaan land in the eternal sense, what you need to realize is that you have rights, privileges, and responsibilities here even though you are on a, in a foreign land. And that you are to live that out because of the gospel of Christ. Only, above all, I'm going to give you some black and white commands, but if you forget all of that, know this, that the gospel of Christ pervades the sinner in such a way that makes him otherworldly because of Christ's work and that you are to live in accord with that. That your life, you know, your life, your manners, everything should be indicative of another land, you know. I mean, it should be evident to the world that your citizenship is not of this world, you know. I mean... My wife got a message just the other day of um, somebody thinking about moving to the area, and she said, "You know, I just I'm getting a kick out of listening to your southern husband. <laughs> you know, like she knows I'm not from there. <laughs> she knows I'm not from Massachusetts. It doesn't take long um, to figure out that my speech and that my mannerisms and that my eating habits and that my culture is different from someone somewhere else. You know, I am me, and that is evident to people who come in from a foreign." Uh, area, even domestic. But it would be even more stark of a contrast if we were to go overseas or someone was to come over here. You can almost immediately tell through accent, culture, habits, um, eating, food, you name it, that this is someone from somewhere else. That's the idea. You know, that, that this person is otherworldly by virtue of Jesus Christ. They've been made, um, uh, they've been made and given privileges of another land and that their, their lifestyle, their behavior, their conduct, their mannerisms, their morales, their ethics, their values, the way they govern their life, their family, the things they prioritize and emphasize um, should, be, um, should be embraced by those people, but it should also be known by those who are not of that country. And it should be known by those who are of that country. You know, um, it's amazing as I worked in the hospital and we would bring people in, 
You know, that I could recognize within a moment by the way somebody talked or looked at me or just their mannerisms. Like that person is from Harlan County, Kentucky. They spoke a different language. <laughs> you know, it was just something distinct. I could tell because I'm from there. And it was almost as if I would revert back to even more southern drawl than what I had, speaking that language when no one else could. You know, and it's just, it is refreshing to be out in the world, to be on the field, to be in work or to be out and to meet another believer. And just a kindred spirit, a common citizenship, because we have a common Christ. And that, 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 that behaves, the mannerisms, the way of life, the, the, the view of family, the priorities, almost immediately. When you get into conversation with a true Christian, you can tell that they have been changed by the gospel of Christ because their conduct, their citizenship, is not of this world. That's the idea. If you don't remember anything, he's saying, above all, remember this. That when you govern your life and you govern your family and you want these positive commands and you're not sure, when you make a decision in your family and there's not a clear positive black and white command and what to do, then govern it by this. You know? Does this honor the gospel of Christ? You know, when we're making decisions in our family with finances or with, with schooling or with raising our children, you know, I would love a handbook on everything that I ought to do to produce the perfect child, but I don't have it. And I don't have one to give you. Um, but I do have this. Above all, in all of your decisions, you know, remember that you're not a citizen of this world. Don't fall into um, the, the patterns of life that the world offers and the morals and the values and the priorities and the science and this and that. The question, the utmost question is, is, does it honor the Lord? Is it becoming of Christ? Is the, is, is the wisdom, am I, is the principle and the wisdom that, that, that because I'm a Christian, that I should first and foremost seek to honor Christ in this decision? You know? That he's saying that, that, that this is how you govern your life in such a way to honor Christ. And that your decisions, your life should be different um, because of that. Because your citizenship is not of this world. And then you see number two. Not only Paul's instruction, but Paul's desire. Paul's desire is exactly what I've just been trying to communicate to you. In some general umbrella sense. That Paul's desire is, is that there would be fruit consistent with a life that is worthy of the gospel. And you see that fleshed out in the rest of the passage. Verse 27 through verse 30. But we're going to give ourselves particularly to the first four in the next 25 to 30 minutes. That we see Paul's desire expressed here in, uh, in these words. But it's interesting because there is seem to be somewhat of a break. Paul expresses his desire initially in these words. Only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ. That's the command. And then he says, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of your affairs. And then he goes on to give, I think, concrete character traits of someone who is living a life worthy of the gospel. All right. But the first character trait is more of a characteristic pattern. And what I mean by that is, is I've given you the outline. The, the, the number one characteristic pattern or something that 
um, someone must have or live a lifestyle of, I think, to live a life worthy of the gospel. So this is the fruit that flows from that command. And this morning, if you're looking um, and examining your heart, which we should be, and at the end of the sermon or throughout the sermon, you're thinking, am I living a life worthy of the gospel? You know, Jesus Christ died for me. His, his blood was paid. You know, I, I'm taking stock of my life. Um, and I'm not sure. If, I, if, if, if what I'm, I, I'm, I'm, how I'm living is kind of, is worthy of the gospel. What the gospel accomplished, I don't know this morning if necessarily um, he's getting from me by his gracious work um, what is honoring to him. Um, then you can ask yourself this morning concretely, um, am I consistent? That's the first one. You know? um, am I constant? Am I courageous? Am I um, these things? But the first one really is more of a, a characteristic pattern of life. That just like the first, the actual command, um, this one is actually going to flavor or inform the rest. So consistent is to a smaller umbrella over the other three. And the idea is this. And if you're going to be constant, you're going to be contending or fighting, you're going to be courageous, then you must be consistent in all of those. That, that you can't be constant, you can't be contending, and you can't be courageous without being consistent. That if you're inconsistent in these things, even though these things are evident in your life, they are not indicative of a life worthy of the gospel. That consistency must be a characteristic pattern of all of areas of our life. That's what Paul is expressing in his initial desire. That he says in verse number 27, and the latter portion, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of your affairs that you. So again, this is informing all the that you's. Right? You could almost say, only let your conduct be worthy of, Christ, of the gospel of Christ, that you stand fast. But in between it, he puts in this characteristic pattern that is to inform all of it. And he's arguing that a life worthy of the gospel manifests itself in a life consistently lived out, I'm going to argue, in the fear of God. That a life worthy of the gospel, so a life that, that at the end of the age, when we stand before God and He judges us and the scales are weighed, that Jesus Christ paid for this, the only way that the scales will be balanced in some sense, not through your work or effort, but through the gift and grace of God in you, as, the, as, as that grace works out a godly life, a holy life in Jesus Christ, as you totally yield and depend upon Him, that you're not pulling yourself up by your bootstraps, you are yielding yourself to God in a holy life, and He's helping you and sustaining you through the power of the Spirit, that if, that wants, if that's going to be our goal, then you must live a life consistently in the fear of God. In the fear of God. And that's what Paul argues. And he uses that with, with this illustration or this phrase. That, I, that, that the command is this, let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come or see you, or am absent, I may hear of your affairs that you stand fast. He begins by expressing his desire for them, which reveals to us that what we might say is an essential key to living out a life worthy of the gospel. And that the key is the key really to all the Christian life, 
as much as the command is. That is, that this characteristic pattern, again, is to inform um, all of our life. And Paul illustrates that pattern by these words, whether or not. And what Paul is saying is, I have certain expectations of what the gospel should be producing in your life. And that should be evident regardless of external pressure or excessive force, even if it's a positive force like apostolic presence. That whether mom and dad, boys and girls, whether mom and dad are looking over your shoulder or not, because of the love that you have for them, you should obey them either in their presence or their absence. Just like I said earlier, kids, right? And I was a kid too. (laughs) My beard might not signify that, but I was at one time. And and what we want to do in raising up our children again is is in some sense to lord over them because the reality is, is that they will never obey you when you're absent unless they first obey you in your presence. You first must teach them what is expected of them and then teach them why it's expected of them so that at some point you can leave them alone and they're governed by love for you and love for God in such a way that they're living in the fear of mom and dad as well as the fear of God in a positive sense, in a reverent sense. That that's what Paul is saying. Paul is saying that the true Christian life is lived out not in apostolic presence, but in the fear of God. Such that whether or not there's external force, there is an internal action happening by the Spirit of God and He's governing and you're living. That's the governing principle of your life. Why? Because you're going to need that. Because Paul's not always going to be present. Mom and dad are not always going to be there. And there's adversaries, the text is going to argue, that are coming. And there's, there's evil and opposition on the way. It's coming in Judaism. It's coming in, um, in, in Rome. It's coming from Nero. It's coming from inside the camp. From even preachers who are seeking to afflict even the apostle in his chains for whatever um, prideful reason. That you need to know that this suffering that came to me, verse number 30, the same conflict which was in me will be in you and you need to be ready. And I won't be there. So you need to be governing your life, not by my presence, but by the very presence of God. And it could be that Paul had some issues. That when he left, he heard that their lives were weakening, that their their fight was lessening, you know, their their strength was was not as strong, Their, their zeal, their discipline had somewhat waned. But maybe not, you know. It seems Paul's very positive about them. But maybe Paul, like a spiritual father, knows his children like you as a physical father know your children. And that there is this tendency or this proclivity that when mom and dad are not there, even though you know that you should be, you're not. And thus Paul wants something to change inside them or to be consistent inside them. Paul knows that there's a natural inclination to let up an effort and diligence and moral standards when no one's watching. Maybe Paul too knows how easy it is to ease up and to give in to pressure from the enemy when no one else is there. When opposition rises and adversaries press in, the pain worsens. We get an Elijah complex that I'm the only one here serving God. What will I do? 
Thus Paul commends to them the, the, the utmost and primary reason for, for Christian service, and that is the honoring of God. And then he's going to commend to them too unity within the church that will help bolster that up as well. He knows that in that moment, when no one's watching, is where true Christianity is displayed. He knows that. Paul knows that, that you, you really don't know whether your Christianity is made of the solid stuff until you're a Christian when no one's there. Paul knows that. You should know that in your children's lives. You, know? you should know that in your own life. That anyone can be externally forced to do just about anything. That pressure can come from outside. That the obedience of your children is not governed completely by how well they obey you in your presence. The rubber really meets the road in their maturity and how well it's been cultivated when they submissively, willfully, joyfully obey out of a love for you even when you're gone. And at times, go above and beyond because they know that, that it pleases mom and dad and it, and, it, and it serves the household and it's honoring to God. That true Christianity is displayed in its purest form when you're sitting at the computer by yourself or you're at work alone or you're in your room at home or when no one else is watching. The fear of God dictates and cultivates in you a desire to honor Him. You realize in that moment that, 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 he, that the gospel is to take an effect upon my life and that if that's the case, and it is to permeate every single area of my life that regardless of anyone watching, He is watching even in the secret places. And that if Jesus Christ is the God of heavens and earth and owns every ounce of this world and you as well, and He died for you, then He owns every part of you and every action from you matters. You know, every action. Everything you do. In everything you do. And out of the motivation by which you do it has eternal potential to lay up treasures in heaven, whether the right hand sees the left or not. You know, whether there's spiritual oversight or not. Paul knows that there is this tendency in their lives that, that, that when he's there, they work harder. You know, ministry is just going like it's, like it's, I mean, just, just like, Hand in glove, you know, I mean, uh, the, the, the pistons are oiled, you know, the engine's working, it's purring. I mean, everything's operating fine. But Paul worries in some sense that when he steps out and because of his absence, that, that, that the reverence for him is greater than the reverence for God. You know? Um, and that's my concern as well. Not only for you, but for my own heart. You know, the life worthy of the gospel is a life worthy to be lived, whether seen by men or not. It is a life worthy that Jesus Christ paid that whether he sees, whether, whether the world sees your actions and your sacrifice and your service or not, he is worthy of it. You know, some people want to just the, 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 the limelight and the stage and the pulpit and the microphone and this and that. And they think that apart from that, they're not really doing anything for God. And, and apart from that, they won't do anything from God. When in all reality, 
Um, God is, is, is watching and seeing and, 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 and holding you. The gospel dictates and, and should, should dictate every area of life, regardless of spiritual oversight, regardless of eyes um, that see it. You know, the real test of a Christian man, Christian woman, a tr- Christian boy, or a tr- Christian girl um, is when mom and dad is, are not there, when pastor is not there. When brother so-and-so is not there, you know, and you purpose in your heart, as we even um, um, talked a little bit about Daniel this morning, you know, a young man who departed from his family, no mother, no father. And in the midst of a pagan society with no gleanings of Jehovah God at all, had purposed in his heart, Daniel 1 verse 8 says, not to sin against the Lord. You know, no one's there watching his mom and dad. There's probably a tendency to fit in and to fit the mold of a pagan society so that you can work your way up and wield your influence for the glory of God. Daniel says, no, I will not. Paul here is battling against what we would know as a sin of hypocrisy by promoting the virtue of sincerity. He's arguing for a sincerity of hearts. I want you to... Corum Deo, Latin for living in the face of God. Not under the eye of the apostle or whoever is there or mom and dad, but I want you to know that you are living under the all-seeing eye of God. Whether it's boys and girls at home, whether it's men while you're working, ladies when no one else is around, um, you are still serving God, so serve Him as if He is there. Whether you're there or not, I want you to be consistent. Whether I'm there or not, I want you to be consistent Across the boards, that, that, that constancy or consistency may describe the obedience and outward manifestation. I want, you to, I want you to run. I want you to walk. I want you to fight. I want you to do it. But the fear of God describes its inner heartthrob. That, 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 that's true, the true motivation, a pleasing of God that you've purposed in your heart to honor Him. And out of that comes a consistent life. As in Philippians 2 and verse 12, So then, my beloved, even as you have always obeyed, he even argues that this is what you've always done. Even as you have always obeyed, I'm not really concerned inherently about whether you're going to be consistent externally. But he goes on to say, even as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only. And what he's saying later in chapter 2 as he fleshes this out is that, that really I'm not concerned externally that, 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 because you've always obeyed even in my absence. You've been consistent, but now much more in my absence. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Carry on. Be constant. Be steadfast. Be outwardly consistent. But may it be born out of a fruit of a knowledge of God and a fear of God and a reverence for God and a love for God for the glory of God. And this is what is extended to us this morning. You know? The true Christianity is mostly displayed. I mean, the character of a person and the glory of Christ is most displayed in the character of a person and his life when he's living outside of external forces to the glory of God alone. And no one else is around. And when no one comes to our aid, we will stand and we will stand fast. Why? Because that's what the gospel demands. That's what Jesus Christ bought. 
That's what His Son, that's what the Father's Son paid for. My life and my life in full, whether seen or not, whether the left hand knows the right, whether, whether or not I make it into a history book or anyone sees me. The all-seeing eye of God and the Son Jesus Christ deserves my life. And He deserves it to be holy and to be morally upright because it's a love for Him. Out of a love for Him. Thus we are called to live a consistent life. To be worthy um, of the gospel of Christ in the fear of God. And then we see that there's three characteristics in which that concretely takes form um, in our lives. And I'm going to give these to you quick. We may spend more time on them as we rehash next week. But number two, you're not only supposed to be consistent. That's the characteristic pattern. But you're to have this characteristic of constancy. Um, chapter 1, verse 27. So that whether I come and see you or absent, I may hear of your affairs that you stand fast in one spirit. In one spirit, you stand fast. You're constant. A unified steadfastness. You, the, the word is a, is a word that's really a military term. It speaks of standing with revolu- Resolution. It's the picture of a man standing with his feet firm, saying to the adversary in some sense, you know, over my dead body. Um, that you stand fast. It means to persevere, to persist, to keep one standing. In other words, to maintain ground. This is the word used for a soldier holding his ground under attack. There's fierce opposition coming and being brought to bear upon the believer, and the believer is to hold the ground. You look at 1 Corinthians 16, 13, Galatians chapter 5, Ephesians 6. In the midst of warfare, he says, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. Put on the whole armor of God. And he tells them to stand. It's the same word. To stand. That you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand against the opposition. That a, man, uh, that, 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 that a man who appropriates the gospel, Jesus Christ died for what, so that, that the privileges that He gives, you will stand for. And you won't give up. Now, Galatians chapter 5 and verse one, more, 1 says, Stand fast therefore in the liberty by which Christ has made us free. Imagine a man <laughs> born in slavery, coming out of Egypt as a Jewish man, coming out and, one, and, and, and someone trying to take him back into that slavery. You know, he's a, a man that's been given this liberty from an enslaved life. Imagine that he will go to death for it. That's the idea. He's gripping it with all that he's got in one spirit. He won't let go. Possibly, you know, the, the one spirit could be speaking of the spirit of God or the spirit as a, as, a, as a redeemed body or even just one individual with a singleness of mind. Either way, the argument is, is that a life worth the gospel is a lifestyle marked by a unified, steadfast spirit which pervades the individual as well as the entire church. And that with one spirit, there's a resolute determination to stand for the truth of the gospel at any cost. That a person who's constant is not a person who's flip-flopping back and forth all the time. They're not fickle. They're not tossed to and fro um, like a ship. Psalm chapter 1. They're not like the chaff blown about by, by every wind. Um, they're firm. They're fixed like a tree planted by the water. They're firm in the promises of God. They're single-minded. And he says that a life that is worthy of the gospel is a life that is standing fast for the privileges, rights, and responsibilities that God has given him. 
And against all opposition, he's not going to let them go. His citizenship, he's hanging on to it. Regardless. Number three, contending. Contending. Verse number 27. That I may hear that you stand fast in one spirit with one mind, striving together in the faith of the gospel. Striving together for the faith of the gospel. Number three, not only are you consistent, constant, but you're contending. You're fighting the good fight of faith with one mind in the faith of the gospel. Again, the words here, striving, it speaks of, of labor, it speaks of uh, enthusiasm, it speaks of zeal, it speaks of exhaustion. And Paul, no doubt here, is, is utilizing that, um, that illustration of an athletic vigor. He loved the games, it seems, and uses them often as illustrations, as one, you know, boxing, not against the air, one running a race. And Paul uses this word purposefully to underscore something of the athletic vigor that is involved in that which is a manifestation of a life worthy of the gospel. That when Jesus Christ died for a people, he died for a people who, with that citizenship, would have the responsibility for fighting for the faith of the gospel as a corporate body. That's what he says, one mind. One spirit striving together. This is harmony. As music notes come together, they're not all singing the same um, part, but they're coming together as one band for one song to fight. And that, that's the idea here. That the, the goal is to, 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 to come together, strive together for the faith of the gospel. And then finally, number four, to be courageous. Not in any way terrified by your adversaries which is to them a proof of perdition, but to you of salvation. When Jesus Christ died for you, and you appropriated the gospel, you know what, what He deserves is a people who will stand fast for what God has given them, hold that ground, press on to fight for the good fight of the faith without fear at all. You know why? Because they're living in the fear of God. That's the idea here. He says, verse number 28, that you're not terrified by your adversaries. Not at all. The word there, terrified, it's actually, it's not used much in the Greek New Testament at all. But it's used outside of it to speak primarily of horse, or a group of horses that are easily spooked, pushed back, in a panic, startled, to the point to where they draw back from whatever it is they're doing. The idea is, is that, 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 that Jesus Christ died, the gospel procured the, the peace of heart such that Nothing would deter you from the fight that God has ordained for you to engage in. This is what Jesus died for. You know what Jesus died for? Not, not just as individuals, but as a church. Jesus Christ died and procured with the gospel message a group of people, a body of Christ, even represented as a local body who would hold fast to the rights and privileges, just imagine it in your mind, in a battle against adversaries, the greatest that this world has to offer, um, the most evil of all entities gathering together, Psalm chapter number 2, and um, they've conspired against... Um, Christ Himself, the, the nation's rage, they've conspired together against. And God says that you and I, as a corporate body, should be linked in arms as one man, the, 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 the words kind of give that picture, one man holding the ground, not being pushed back, pushing on without a fear in our eyes. And that that will get to this next week, and that that is a proof to them of their destruction. 
And that it should be a comfort to you of our salvation because it's from God. (laughs) The idea is, is that we are not fearful in our fight or our holding fast, but we press on and that the fear is actually wrought in the enemy. That's the idea. That we are battling against principalities and powers and all that this world has to offer and that Jesus Christ died to, 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 to appropriate a people who would fight for the good fight of faith, uphold the Word of God in its sufficiency, preach the Gospel to the ends of the earth, secure the salvation of all those whom God died for out of every nation, tribe, and tongue without an ounce of fear in our eyes. Such that we are not spooked, we press on, and in our advance, we actually produce fear in their eyes. As if David, you know, whom was mocked by Goliath, picks up his sling and runs forth in just seemingly total ignorance. It would be as if Goliath in that moment who thought that he was just an insignificant little boy as as that stone is flying towards him it produces fear in his eyes right before death. And then what happens? All of the Philistines hear about it and they run for the hills. That's the idea. When Jesus Christ died He died not only quantitatively for your eternal salvation that you would live on forever but that He died so that you would live a life of a certain accord that would be holy and pure, but would also manifest itself in fighting for that which is holy and pure. You know, and like you, and you study a passage like this, and at the end of the day, like you just have to sit and ask the question, am I living a life that's worthy of the gospel? Am I living a life worthy of the gospel? Is Jesus Christ getting this morning what he deserves out of me? You know, I take stock of my life all week long and come to the realization I don't think he is. And I don't think that he's getting what he deserves out of the church either as a whole. Not the paint, not the picture that's being painted here. And that's not to say that, that, that I'm picking on you or myself. It's just coming to the realization that yes, we're not to be perfect people, and we will not achieve a status. We will never be. Uh, we'll never apprehend that for which we are apprehended for. But God convict us in the areas that where we are, so that we can press on. I want to be uh, not only to God, but also to display His character to the lost and a dying world in such a way that actually sees forth <coughs> where my righteousness. Um, the righteousness that He works in us by the grace that He extends to us by the power of the Spirit shines forth like, a no- like the noonday sun. Blinds the minds and the eyes of the enemy producing fear in them. Such that it's consistent with a faithful gospel life. That's what He's arguing for here. Faithfulness. The, the problem is, is that we don't as a people or we don't as individuals know what faithfulness means. Most men don't know what God requires of them. Most women have no idea what God desires for them. You know? But we want to be, we create our own, our own scales and we, we, we make our own criteria for what we think a godly man is or what, what we think advancing the kingdom is when it's, it's, it's all so clear here 
There's 66 books that lay out what a man should be, what a Christian man should be, what a member of a church should be, what a father should be, what a husband should be, what a workman should be, what a career man should be, how a man is to conduct himself in all of life. And even if you don't have black and white, you have this command here today, let your conduct be worthy of the Gospel such that you could ask today and what I'm doing now, this decision that I'm making, is this something that would honor Christ in the Gospel? God has given us more than enough to gauge our faithfulness on, and that's what He desires as much, if not more, than anything. He doesn't need novelty. He doesn't need necessarily your creativity. He doesn't need recommendations or opinions. What He desires is to receive the reward of His suffering, and that is a people in love with Him and loving Him with a full commitment to a holy life in repentance and in faith. Thus, you know, I, I put it like this with myself this week, you know. Not only am I consistent and am I constant and am I courageous and am I this or that, but, 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 but maybe negatively, you know. Am I inconsistent in my walk? Am I irregular and intermittent in my stand? Am I indifferent in the fights? Am I fighting at all? And I lie to myself a lot of times and think that I am, you know. <laughs> But really, like as a church, like, are we binding arms in unity? The unity of the faith and for the faith of the gospel. Like, are we together on this? You say, yes, we are. Yes, in theory, I'm afraid. But what objective, what objective criteria do we have to gauge this by? Am I fearful of my adversaries? I'm a scared little boy on a lot of days. Just overwhelmed by worry and fear. You know, like Jesus Christ died so that wouldn't be a reality in my life. Am I excusing my enemies and their unbelief? You know, when I should be producing fear, am I giving them an excuse for their atheism because of the hypocrisy of my life? You know, am I uncertain and do I lack assurance in my salvation? Because the reality is, is that I don't see much fruit at all. If that's true, then you're not living a life worthy of the gospel. And I'm not either. We should repent and trust God and move towards Him and pick up the fight and just, and just start laboring, laying aside other things of this world that we think are important and give ourselves to the primary things, the simple things, the basic things, the things that we know God says. Not only should we examine our lives this morning and ask ourselves, you know, am I, am I living a life worthy of the gospel? I think number two, we should just see our desperate need. For consistent conformity demanded by the gospel. What a desperate need we have for principled, mature, consistent men and women who live in the fear of God. I mean, that life which God will use to validate the word preached from the pulpit, to display his glory, to attract, to convince, to persuade, to, to be attractive as we adorn the gospel of God, Titus chapter number 2. You know, that it's more about than about the attractiveness of a building or the glory of a marketing strategy. You know, or the credibility of the gospel often lies in us as a congregation. And that's why Jesus Christ prays for our unity in John chapter number 17. And he says that in connection with that, so that they will know. So that they will know. 
That Jesus Christ died for the unity of the body, for the gospel message, to fight the good fight of faith without fear. And in doing that, it is a testimony to all those who are out there in the, of our same citizenship or the citizenship of this world that Jesus Christ is alive. He's seated at the right hand of God the Father. He's living on the throne, ruling and reigning forevermore. And may they have to step on their, over their own consciences and clear and clear reality, in, not only in the heavens, but in the display of the glory of God in your life. May they have to step over that grace, that gospel grace, that gospel holiness, that gospel clarity on their way to hell. As they reject that gospel, which is so evident, not only in the heavens, but also in your life. But along the way, may some see it and be convicted in their hearts to the depths and the recesses of their souls as they're shown their own sin, that they might cling to God and Jesus Christ would further receive the reward of His sufferings, not only here in Kingsport, Tennessee, but all throughout the world. I think that that is clearly displayed generally as general means of grace in principled, mature, consistent men and women who will live out their lives daily in the fear of God. We live in a generation governed by feelings. We are cursed by the tyranny of a felt state. Instead of governing ourselves, we are being governed by our, our passions. Slaves held captive to our feelings, being carried away, tossed to and fro. And dare I say that if, if that reality finds a home in our conscience, our life is marked by inconsistency, not in accord with the gospel. And that we need simple, single-minded, God-oriented, Christ-centered, spirit-filled, wholehearted, consistent obedience. Men who live on highs die on lows, but consistent men, faithful men, live through the trials, even apart from Paul when he's not there. Because why? Because these men know God. They know Him. They wake up and they get to work because they know God expects it of them. And they disciple their children. Why? Because they know they'll give an account to God one day that Jesus Christ purchased that discipleship. And that He deserves that discipleship. Whether they come or not. Whether they're saved or not. Although we pray for the salvation and expect the salvation through faithfulness and through obedience, we, we recognize that regardless of whether He saves our little ones or not, that, that He is worthy of that, of being following that command to, to train them up in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. And they may have to, and may they have to step over the grace in that um, as they depart from God. We need desperately men who live a life consistent with the gospel. Who are not intimidated or frightened or carried away by the lust of the world. Um, why? Because they live in the fear of God. They live in the fear of God. And although I could carry on, <laughs> I think that's a good place to end our sermon this morning, our message. Paul is pleading with us this morning. 2,000 years removed. I thank God often now for the Apostle Paul and his love for Philippi because I reap the utter reward of his love for them. God was good and gracious in preserving such a book for us. And not only that, but the heart and the spiritual capacity, the theological mind, but also the affectionate heart of a man who loved God. And as much as I read the commands... Oftentimes I read the words on the page and I say, Father, even beyond the page, give me a heart like that, a heart after you. Make me like Paul. Father, give me a love for people and for the church like that. 
Yet at the same time, help me to heed his words, Father. Help me to examine my own heart. Am I living a life worthy of the gospel? If not, Father, make the gospel so evident in my heart and life. Manifest the beauty of Christ in such a way, Father, that... um, that I could be nothing other than just simply astounded and fall down on my face and worship because of the utter glory that I see. Father, in that, help me not to stay there, <laughs> but stand up and to walk as a citizen of heaven with all the world recognizing insofar as I can reach. But this man, I may not agree with everything that he, he says or does, But you can tell that he believes what he says because it's evident in his life. And may God use that to change the hearts of others. And if he doesn't, and I don't know of one soul that's changed by the faithfulness that was wrought in me through the Spirit of God and his word, then it is sufficient to me and should be sufficient to me Give Jesus Christ the reward of his suffering in an obedient life regardless of whether any accolades are ever laid at my feet in this life or the next. Um, His death was sufficient for my holiness. And although I I believe beyond a shadow of a doubt and have faith, he gives fruit to faithfulness in this life. I would be nothing more than a prosperity preacher. (laughs) To cling to that first and foremost. But may that be in our lives. The general spiritual blessed outflow of an almighty God. Who works it in. Because of a love that we have for him. And of that love alone. Let us keep his commandments. Why? Because we love him. And in his great providence. And his miraculous work. And his spiritual blessings. May he pour out that love abundantly upon us. And the fruit of the converted because we know that his lost sheep are still out there and I trust beyond a shadow of a doubt that when we live like this in unity and in that bond when it is forged men will take note and they will either fear us and turn to run to the hills or they will fear God as they fall and worship him at his feet um, it will either harden men or it will soften the most hardest of hearts as God gives them a heart of flesh. And that's what my desire is. Not in my own life, but for you. So let us pray to that end. Father, we love and thank you and praise you for the blessed glory of Christ. What a privilege it is, Father. What a privilege it is to serve and honor such a high king. Father, I think of all the men that I would love to send to the top of this nation. Father, I think of all the glorious blessings they could bring. I think of all the men who would follow. In some sense, I yearn for that. But that pales in comparison, Father, to the glory that is in Christ Jesus and that good King that gracious manifestation of an almighty God in your Son. Father, help me to spend and to be spent for him. Help me to be known, to know and to be known by him. 
Help me to love and to be loved by him. Help me to live, Father, in and through him. And help me die, Father, in the same capacity. Such that there is no hiccup in this life or the next as to my walk with God. If you see fit, Lord, make it known to all the earth. And if not, I know that it was known to you. And for that, Father, and that is sufficient for me. Father, you know how well I, how, <laughs> how I don't do well with accolades anyway or rewards. You know how apt my heart is to pride. You know how much of a lack of humility that I often have. You, Father, know how I love the amens and the good jobs. Father, you know that that, without your restraint, would be my utter destruction. Father, if you restrain that for the rest of my life in whatever capacity I understand and almost ask for it so that you may help me, Father, to walk in the fear of God. Help me, O Lord. As we read this morning in Psalm 27, you have commanded us, Father, to seek your face. So help us, Lord. To say, but also to mean in our heart of hearts, 